Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost and Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who once said, watch me show that dame what I think about money, and then spent three hours explaining communism to a dog. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, step one, uh, what I think about money is that it all deserves to be thrown into the spittoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's not just this one, it's all of it. I yeah. I am just fascinated by the term dame, yeah. Uh, because it is, I that part of the, this movie, I could not wrap my head around. I watched it like five times, and I'm like, I are you, don't understand what's happening here. Are you not familiar with the word dame? As, as no, I'm under. I'm aware. I do think it's funny that dame sounds enough like Dane that I was like, oh, a great name. Oh yes. Um, yes. but. Specifically, but but no, I'm I'm aware of the term Dame. My problem is is that like the sequences of of events right there is yeah. baffling to me. I don't know what anybody's motivation is. Like I get the rest of the movie, but yeah. the 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 five minutes in the bar, I I watched so many times. It's like it is what like is it like is. Like, I still can't even articulate the question. I'm like, okay, so he's throwing <laughs> the money into the spittoon yeah. as an abuse of the worker to show the woman that he's cool? Yeah. Uh, that is a I very think... confusing process. I guess it's functionally the same as being an asshole to your waiter now and not tipping right. to, like, show your the person you're on a date with that you're tough? Powerful. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. I, I can think, abuse uh, service workers. Right. What I kept thinking through that entire scene of introducing Buck Mulligan uh, is that the bad guy in Johnny Dangerously probably has a lot of antecedents, but visually, I kept thinking, he's got to be based on Buck Mulligan. Like, the little mustache, the... the yeah, I mean, these guys him, are right? very prototypical, like, bad right, guys. Right. Like, in really intense... Yeah. Both sides, really. Like, I mean... I know one of them is, is not a bad guy, per se, but, like, he, yeah. they're, they're all so... Stereotypical. This is famously a prototypical gangster movie. Yes, so. I understand that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it shows in, in ways that I didn't expect it to show. I expected it like because right. it's described as like being sort of the the er like yeah gangster movie in like sort of like style and plot. I didn't expect it to go down to also care every character and their stylings. <laughs> right. Like I was like, whoa. Inclu like my favorite though, honestly, what I kept thinking about that is like all cologne dispensers should still work that way. Yes, absolutely. Where you pull 100%. the handle and it just fucking squirt guns you with the cologne. Yeah. <laughs> you just pull 100%. the handle and just like, hope you have your handkerchief ready because this shit's going to shoot out. Before we get out too much more about this movie, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-criterion film over there every month, and our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch. So I put together a list or sometimes take suggestions for lists from our supporters. 
and it's always four options, and then the fifth option is Kazam, the children's movie. Uh, sorry, also the, an er gangster movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely prototypical Actually. of something. Fortunately, they've only voted for it twice because it's really not a very good movie. But we live, we learn, and we press on. <laughs> and we and we never pick that movie again. Right, right. It just you know it only ever gets picked when I've completely failed at making a list otherwise. So. Thankfully, and at this point, I don't even think in, in that case it'll ever happen again. I think it's right. it, they're 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 so over it that they'll never pick yeah. it again. Right, right, right. I'm actually uh, daring them to do it. I'm going to continue to imply that they'll never do it in every uh, every Patreon yeah. thing, just so just to see if the see if it's enough to you know get their hackles up and make and make them all Absolutely. do it just because they they want to punish me for my hubris. <laughs> Good luck. Uh that bonus feature we only do uh, January through November. Our December bonus feature nobody gets to vote on and goes out to everybody uh, because it's our our annual holiday. We special. don't believe in democracy, is what we're telling. Uh, not not during the holiday season. Yeah, uh, Santa holiday is, does not believe in democracy. Santa yeah. believes in a dictatorship. The holiday Thank season is about forcing uh, gifts onto other people. Yeah, uh, accurate. <laughs> And that's and that's how we handle the bonus episode for December. Um, Here is your gift. Take it and like it. Yes. Uh, and don't cry because you love us. And yeah, that makes sense. Um, we that went somewhere dark that I don't like. Uh, <laughs> a little above that one dollar mark, we do. Uh, we like to thank those folks on air who can support us at five dollars. Uh, really helps us out. And really grateful to them. So thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer. Uh, so grateful to have the yes, four thank of you supporting you us at $5 right for now. For sticking by us through yeah. thick and thin. Above that $5 mark, we do something pretty dang special. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched every month. And I get that art printed up on a postcard. Write a little personalized thank you note and mail that off. I think is really great, and other people think is really great because we have hey, a it's pretty cool, pretty, pretty generally good response. Pat's art, delightful. I gotta say, I mean, it, I'm expecting the response to decline now that I do only one kind of art forever because it's it's the th- kind that makes me most happy now. I, I'm glad that you're happy, and I think I think it's been good so far and varied so far because even even if it is the same medium. You are still not a person who wants to make the same product over and over again. No, and so. that and that's gonna probably bite me in the ass later. I need to buy a lot more patch cables if I'm gonna continue to <laughs> iterate in different ways. Yes. Well, good luck with that. Um, uh, we also like to thank those ten dollar and above supporters on air. Thank you so much to Jason Westhaver, Patrick Yako, Tracy McGrath, Nina Bojnak, and Adam Speakerman. Yes, uh, thank you all of you. Yeah. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. You see the past postcards, and you can purchase them as postcards, as greeting cards. You can also purchase them if you are committed to that $10 mark. If, for example, you need Christmas presents. Right. It's not an Mm -hmm. either-or thing. If if you're already paying for one card per month with a special thank you note, you can buy other cards without the thank you note from Redbubble. We won't stop you. do whatever your I mean, heart desires. It is holiday greeting card season. I'm just it saying. Is, it is. And there's what a says lot of... I love you more than a weird fractalized picture of Gary Oldman 
with like a five dollar <laughs> Amazon gift card. Yeah. We yeah. won't send you the gift card. That, that you have to buy that separately. But you could put yeah. them together. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, you could. You can put a gift card inside a picture of Gary Oldman's head. And it's it's one of my favorites. Let's be it's very really clear. I, it's one of the ones I'm most proud of. So yeah. I recommend that one. It will confuse your family deeply. Yeah, which is great. That's what else are the holidays for if not confusing family members? Precisely. You only see them once a year anyway. Leave them baffled. I I will say though, as far as postcards are concerned, I cannot outdo the underworld poster. It is a magnificent work of art. It is beautiful, it and is. It and is. whenever we encounter a truly beautiful piece of poster work for like a movie, I get a little like, oh, well, I I should just give up this month because I can't <laughs> well, just... I can't beat that. You've got you've got other choices for December. I know, I know, underworld. but it always feels like I failed. Like it's like yeah. I didn't even necessarily want to do Underworld, but now I feel like oh, well, I mean, I this is this is the pinnacle here. I can't, I can't outdo that. <laughs> That's true. It's it's gorgeous, and it is, it is so old fashioned. It is like ultra long. It's like a it's like a play like a like a old fashioned theater banner instead yeah. of like a <laughs> proper poster. It's amazing. Gorgeous, hanging off the very tip of the flat iron building. That's uh, that's what this is designed for. Yeah, it is beautiful. Um, before we talk too much about the underworld poster or underworld period, uh, no, it's all a poster. Let's <laughs> do say movie. What? No. Yeah, let's do say thank you so much to everybody who supported us on Patreon, yes. everyone who supported us through Redbubble, and thank you for listening. As Pat said, yes, this week we were so talking much. about underworld. Uh, it is the first of a box set, three silent classics by Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, von Sternberg, we've seen one movie of his before, The Scarlet Empress, long time ago, which uh, starred Marlene Dietrich as Catherine the Great. Uh, I Oh, right, okay. All yeah, right. really, really visually stunning movie there as well. Particularly, I remember a scene of her on a flower-colored swing that I think is really iconic scene from... from Scarlet Empress. Uh, but that was a real long time ago. That was uh, very that, long ago. Yeah. It was super long ago. Yeah, that was Spine 109. And we are 528 with Underworld. <laughs> Jeez, 400 plus yeah. episodes ago. Yeah. Well, we're, um, we're it, you know, it feels appropriate almost in a weird sort of way because we were watching a movie that is bo- is rapidly approaching a full hun- a full century, which is right. crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, The Scarlet Princess is also, you know, a few decades, I think, after this. So, um, yeah, this about is... one, right? This is Scarlet Empress is 1934, um, right, according right. to the internet. And this yeah, is 1927. So, right. So I guess it's only seven years, uh, which is, you know, it jumps the, the talky divide, uh, which right, is right. really. Really, why it feels older, like more. Yeah, time. that does represent like a really. It is it is fascinating because, like, obviously they're they're very close together in actual time, but they feel yeah. very different because of that 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 difference, right? You know, it's been so long since we've talked about a Sternberg film. I I don't have any reason. Uh, you know, we can we can run through some biographical stuff. Uh, first off, the Vaughn is fake. Uh, he added wow. it to sound. I mean, to sound it's fake in the sense that it like 
He added right. it later, but it's as fake fine. as any other name. <laughs> yeah, it's all, all names bullshit. are fake. Okay, fine. Um, well, I'm just saying, like, if I choose yeah. to add a Vaughn to my name, which I'm not saying I would, <laughs> uh, it is not fake. It is just like, well, I decided to change my name. Just It sounds cool. I mean, first off, if you chose to be add a Vaughn to your name, it's a rejection of your Irish heritage. Yeah, so, my, I uh, would. Well, I mean, I do also have German heritage, but that's not the yeah. here nor there. Um, it would also just make my name even worse as far yes. as my coworkers are concerned. It, my name is already the, deely baffling. And then just adding an extra just thingamajigger in there. Yeah. Just, especially if I decide to put it in the wrong place. Right. If it's like John Von Patrick Otari Dorgan, it would be <laughs> wild. Just like blow you should, their minds. You should well, definitely I have throw a coworker with a van in yeah. his name because his family is originally uh, at least part of his family is originally Dutch, and it like yeah. they don't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do with it. They're like, "Is this another name? How is this related to everything else?" It really shouldn't be that hard to explain to them the the cultural equivalent of song. No, I mean people understand the, the name, like you but... can explain, and they understand the cultural thing. It's like it's more how does it fit into a very rigid naming right, right. framework, is, yeah. which is doesn't accept doesn't accept America, you know, like English names very well. But like struggles even more when there's just extra bits tacked on. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this, this, this they don't. The system right. also doesn't and, handle lots of other kinds of names very well either. Okay, yeah. let's be clear. And while while structurally it might seem similar to to the San uh, addendum onto names, it is not. It's very it different. Not, it is functionally very different. Sternberg was born in Austria, but moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey, very young. Uh, Fort Lee is not very far from New York, and some of the information says he was raised in New York, but the more explicit information says he was raised in Fort Lee. Uh, I mean, that's like adding Vaughn to your name. You're like, no, yeah, I was a raised little bit. in New York. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, so he basically lived in America all his life. Um, through his teen years, he did go back to Austria during the summers, I believe. Uh, but, yeah, son of immigrants. And he... Had a rocky start to his career in that everyone recognized he was super talented. Like, everyone recognized he was super talented. And then, uh, not necessarily because he was also a perfectionist, uh, but no one really wanted to work with him <laughs> pretty quick. He, some of the bonus features, uh, on this disc that will get get more into this, um, which Pat didn't have access to this week, but but we'll moving forward. His first, he, he was assistant director through around 1920, into the early 20s. And then United Artists, which was Chaplin's production company, uh, Chaplin really fell in love with his work and hired him to do a movie called The Salvation Hunters in 1924. It seems like a really interesting movie. Uh, it's uh, co-produced by Sternberg and a British actor named George K. Arthur. And it's about uh, a couple who live like in the shadow of a dredging machine. And it's it's referred to as unglamorous realism. Uh, and and it's just it's this dystopian hellscape of industrialization that they're forced to live in and it's a struggling couple and like they they find a young boy being abused by someone else and basically adopt him and it's just their struggle 
And by all accounts, it's a fantastic movie that did not connect with an audience whatsoever. Right. So so he directed that and then it yeah. It just didn't didn't connect. And then he worked for MGM for a little bit and was working on a movie called The Exquisite Sinner, which I think he got replaced on or it got okay. uh or it got it got quashed after they finished. Uh, so that one never came out. And then I think A Woman of the Sea was his next work in 1926. And that one also, that was, that was a United artist and Chaplin refused to, uh, refused to put it out for no known reason. So yeah, he had a bunch of false starts and somehow he got put in charge of Underworld but even that's weird because he didn't when underworld first went into production he was not the director okay he uh there was a different person attached to direct and then at some point during pre-production uh Arthur Rosen was the the name of the original director and some some point Sternberg was appointed as director of photographic innovation. So basically director of photography. Okay. Uh, which was the, the news around that put them on an equal level. So Rawson would direct the drama parts and Sternberg would direct the visuals basically, which is Sternberg's strength. Certainly not that he's bad at the drama parts too, but right. the, but the visual stuff is what he's super good at. And then at some point during that process, Rawson was out. And I don't know. No one no one seems sure why. No one seems sure at what point. Um, but he is no longer attached. And Sternberg is just the guy attached to this movie. And Paramount did not think that this was going to do well. Okay. So when it premiered, it premiered in a single theater in New York. Oh, my God. They basically were burying it. Ben Hecht, who is the journalist who wrote the screenplay for this movie, well, uh-huh. the the version of the screenplay that <laughs> that Sternberg basically didn't use, but <laughs> Hecht was so mad between the changes Sternberg made and just the general lack of uh, any enthusiasm behind Sternberg's work that he had tried to have his name removed from the movie. Uh, which is really interesting because he won an Oscar for this movie. <laughs> the only thing, inaugural Perfect. Oscars, it won best best story adaptation. Uh, but Hecht was a Hecht was a crime journalist out of Chicago and and based a lot of what he put into this movie on real people, real criminal uh, crime bosses in Chicago, and was not very happy about the. I think the love story was basically added. Uh, the women in hex version of this were much more one dimensional than what we get from feathers in this, uh, who has some amount of agency in what happens. Uh, maybe not a great amount of agency, but still an amount of agency. Uh, so, so hex, yeah, he did not, he did not like the script as it ended up being shot, uh, and try to have his name removed and then won an Oscar for best, 
for best adaptation. That's perfect. Is, That's just the best. Is, or best story. Paramount did not believe in this, put it into one theater, and as soon as it went into that one theater, like it premiered on a Friday, and by Wednesday, that theater was running midnight showings of this movie. Right. Uh, it was it was so popular they just kept adding more showing times. Uh, there's a point, you know, the mythos around that we can we don't need to get into what's what is reality and what isn't. Uh, but there are claims that at some point it was showing 24 hours a day. Uh, <laughs> within like the I first mean, couple weeks of its premiere, you can see why, right? Like. This yeah. captures, uh, like, an element of a moment in time that, like, is even more familiar to the audience. Like, we're all familiar with, like, the Prohibition-era gangster as a, as a, as a archetype in that, that kind of movie. Uh, but we're not, like, can you imagine the first one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, that's... that would be mind-blowing, right? Like, you would yeah. just, like, lose it. Some of some of the scholars involved, particularly with the with the criterion, the essay and 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 the bonus features here, push back against calling this the uh, the first gangster movie because uh, one I I feel like some of that comes from this idea that genre films just aren't good and this is this is too good to be a genre film, um, but I think even you know even those people would would argue that, you know, say Scarface a couple years later is really the first gangster movie or something, but that's still an artistic movie. It's not like it's just nothing. But, uh, but so the pushback is a little weird, but, uh, basically the argument is that this isn't, this is the movie that established gangster movie aesthetics, but not gangster movie plots. Because... Because the women have more agency, because there's the love story, because of the way it ends with the the main gangster making a sacrifice, or or even uh, this is more of a joke, but I feel like I think it's from the essay pushing back on calling this a gangster movie because there really are no gangs. There's just two <laughs> two guys two positioned as mob bosses who 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 do all their crimes themselves and have no right. I, I mean, to be fair. Uh, uh, what is it? I get. I keep Buck, getting. It's... Buck has an entourage, and right. well, and the group no. that the group that breaks Bull out of prison is a group of people, right? It's not... right. Yeah, and and, yeah. and to be ba- fair, like it, it, but it is very funny to watch Bull commit all of his crimes essentially alone and like yes. middle of the day. Um, right. I say some weird thing, but like the thing about it is, is yeah. I mean, I get what all that's saying, but I I come back at it with like the idea that like. Yeah, okay. But, like, you know, you can make those kinds of arguments about any, almost anything that fits into a genre in that, like, well, these are the things that right. make it not exactly that genre, right? Yeah. Because nobody, uh, okay, not nobody, but, like, in general, people who are interested in making art, even if it, you're in an already established genre, are, like, looking to, like, make their name in that genre, and that requires tweaking it and messing around with it and doing different things i i would say that like in a lot of ways like the aesthetics are really really important to the genre like yeah really important to the point where like without them the genre doesn't exist uh so i i get what they're saying i mean i understand where they're coming from it's just 
I don't know. Like, I feel like you could do that with almost any genre film. Like, if you're if you wanted to be not to be mean, but like somewhat pedantic about the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, if <laughs> you know what I mean. You can you can certainly argue that the the prototypical example of a genre film never hits all of the definitions of that genre. Right. Film. Exactly. Yeah. By yeah. Its, you think about that with nature, like noir or something right? like that. Yeah, yeah. It's and and then they're and they're going to be iterated on for so by so many people for so long that like a lot of times that especially yeah if it's yeah you're gonna it's gonna be iterated into something that is different than that initial uh, sort of initial film right like. Uh, I mean, like, gangster film, too, like, I don't know if they're using, I assume they're using specifically Prohibition-era gangster film and not just the gangster film, which continues to go on for, well, yeah. essentially forever. <laughs> Always. Like, has not stopped being made, and they're not all, they, they're certainly by no means all pro, Prohibition-era films. Right. Right. Um, it continues and to get certain, iterated on it to the point the, where it eventually leaves the Prohibition. Yeah. And the... Uh... The gangster movies we think of when we think of gangster movies are trying to ape more from underworld than from the genre as as a, right, a whole. Yeah. Right. You know, they're trying you know, something like The Godfather is trying to transcend. Uh but any you know, other other Coppola work, other other Scorsese work in the gangster genre is trying to be well. It's trying to do sort of aesthetically and even somewhat ideologically what Underworld is doing while also having more realistic portrayals of the violence. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah, it's just it's and that's true. I think that that extends to basically every genre you can think of. Right. Like nobody. Right. Absolutely. It would be weird to not. <laughs> it would be almost weird if that's not how it worked. Some of the weirder flourishes in this movie are are true to life things. Uh Mulligan being having his cover business as a florist is, yes, is yeah. something pulled pulled directly from reality. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm aware of that being a thing. That's... Yeah, and the uh, Bull's story arc of being sentenced to death and escaping is drawn from someone particular, particular, but that someone did actually succeed in escape three well, days that's, before his I mean, execution. good for them. Yeah. Um, because, frankly, I got to say, Bull's The ending of this I don't is, like. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, like, yeah. I don't I don't mind the sort of, like, uh, uh, what, what amounted because of, like, the things we were talking about before as a somewhat unexpected turn in the way the movie develops at the end, I, I was fascinated by like in that, like you know, Bull has a sort of like self actualization moment to the point of like, and and coming to terms with the idea that like, oh, like this is, I was, you know, I was the problem in a lot of ways, right? But like, right, um, I I agree. Him just like sort of at the end getting arrested is is a little um, lackluster. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by the idea that um, <laughs> that like the movie is convinced that's how prisons work. <laughs> that like the guy with the keys is also playing checkers with you like yeah. through the bars is is fucking like is like some Hannibal level bullshit like listen man it's 19 or you know 1926 uh, things were different some uh, silence of the lamb level like yeah. uh, like oh like come over to me Mr. Guard <laughs> and come in and invest it. like like it's so like you see it in movies all the time but it's like yeah like come on man like come on 
Well, that's, I mean, that's not even the most ridiculous coincidental aspect of Bull's Bull's escape. Like, they show up to break him out just as Bull has sort of independently done this checker gambit. So, right. like, it's very silly. Um, uh, one one other thing on the ending, since, since we've talked about his sacrifice now. Uh, possibly shot uh, from from what I was looking at, uh, but certainly written is a much more it was referred to as a more traditional happy ending which sounds weird given what happens um, what does that but mean? it is it is probably more in line with what what the Hayes code censors would have wanted uh not that you know the Hayes code stuff wasn't really in place at this point I don't think so uh but uh bull sacrifices himself to save feathers by throwing himself um. on a grenade that I guess the a police grenade. Yeah, How the fucking police throwing grenades in the buildings. Jesus. I mean, they're already they're already indiscriminately firing on this whole. Block. I mean, they do have a fucking machine gun out there. <laughs> it's a, pretty with a, intense. With, yeah, with a with a motorcycle mounted Gatling gun at one point too. Yeah, so. it's 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 frankly amazing the arsenal they bring to bear yeah. in that scene because it's like, it's just like what? Yeah, like, but uh. But yeah, the storyline there would be that uh, the he sacrifices himself by throwing himself on the grenade, so he dies, and then right. Feathers and Rolls Royce escape, basically unharmed. Whereas what we get here is that he turns himself in for uh, to face certain death, certainly right, um, and Rolls gets injured, and then they. He and feathers. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the the nice thing about this version is that like, um, Bull has to explicitly decide that it is better for him to not stand in their way and to like help them right. together than right. Whereas the grenade right. like can be very selfish, one sided, and be just about saving like her. saving and feathers' life or something. Yeah. yeah, and being here. Whereas here he has to make a sort of like very serious personal decision about like what what his values are basically um and and i and i think that and and and, and honestly speaking like you know you kind of know that the movie's going to end you you actually don't know the movie's going to end happily like right. you know maybe audience at the time might but like you know you're not really keyed in on whether or not we, you know what bull's final decision will be until we basically get there right like he's orienting raving lunatic when we start with him in that apartment and so right it, you could imagine him also shooting rolls royce at the end and they all die right like and we go full like fucking greek tragedy and everybody dies right uh, right it's it seems possible right like it they are all bad guys technically so like in the sort of morality of like again something like the Hayes code which is like you know later but like nonetheless that sort of idea of morality where like the bad guys have to lose well they're all bad guys quote unquote so like it's not there's nothing to stop a movie from being like well they all deserve to die yeah or they all even, deserve to be arrested right or they all get arrested you know even in 1927 i don't think they could have made this true to reality of of the gangster getting away at the end and have this movie no 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 of course i i think that's the only answer we know won't happen yeah. but i'm saying that there's enough possibility space at the end that like we know 
We don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, we, we know he's not going to get away. Like, but that's also made clear by the movie. Like, he's very clearly in a, between a, hard, a rock and a hard place at the end. Like, they make the movie makes it super clear that, like, he's not getting away. Right. Um, and then, like, Rolls-Royce showing up doesn't ever really mentally, for me, indicate that he's going to get away. It's just a matter of how many people are going to either die or get locked up with it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and feathers, feathers already being there with him, and and dodging bullets from the police already, uh, and like the police, the resp- it's the I think the most ridiculous aspect of this movie is the idea that the police accept Bull's surrender and don't just immediately murder him. Yeah, yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> Especially yeah, after he's gunned down a bunch of cops already, right. Uh, as far as I understand, cops cops be like, copping all like, the time. Even, They're going to blow in 1927, them away. Maybe especially in 1927 with, with Chicago PD or, or NYPD or wherever this is supposed to be. Uh, there's there's that immediate revenge is something that would, would have happened. So, right, like, exactly. Yeah, I, I, it's unbelievable. But like, um, I yeah, I don't, yeah, that, that is very true. I need to know, did the kitten survive? That's my question. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, she rescues the kitten from the window, but then I don't feel like we see it later. I don't know, man. There's a, there's enough cats in this movie. Uh, you know, the darkest thought I had during this movie was as soon as we saw the first the first kitten show up, like the one he feeds, or or maybe it right. was the the strays in the alley when we first get to the bar scene. Uh, my first thought was, oh man, all those cats are dead. <laughs> And have been for a hundred years. I don't yeah. know why that was my first thought. So no, very... with all the actors too, but yeah, yeah. I like, like most it. Of the... I like it. Yeah, all of these actors are definitely dead too because they're in like their thirties in nineteen twenty-seven. So yeah, definitely. But uh, none of yeah, none of these guys are one hundred and thirty years old still still trancing around Hollywood. But uh, but yeah, the cats the cats was much more much more interesting in my head. Well, yeah, I and mean, it, like the the cats were dead. Even more significantly longer ago, I guess. And like, like that's maybe a weird. I I don't want to get too bogged down on this tangent, but, uh, but I guess that's probably true of every animal we've seen in any movie, uh, because we've not watched movies recently enough. Yes, yeah, we've uh, watched recently enough. Uh, We've never watched a movie that was made within like the last seven years or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but. uh, but yeah, I don't know why. Why particularly these these kittens had that thought trigger in me? Maybe because I they suppose were that the movies we've watched made in two thousand eight, it is possible. It is possible there is still a cat from a two thousand eight movie to be very old but alive. Yeah, I just I don't remember there being any animals in any of our two thousand eight so movies. Yeah. I think that's another Sternberg addition to the script was the humanizing of Bull by having him feed the cat milk off of his own right. finger. Uh but I think that seems really great. Uh, I do too. I yeah, mean, I think, actually, I think the way Bull is played and and written is is fascinating, right? Like, yeah, he's got a very like intense, like outward, boisterous, like in your face appearance, but also in a lot of ways seems to be a pretty, in, in some ways, can be seem to be a very kind person. Uh, yeah, is is a fascinating is a fascinating character, like like right. Yeah, design that we have going on with him. Certainly, what he's doing with that kitten is mirrored in what he's doing with Rolls Royce, right? He's right. He's lived. Uh, he doesn't really get anything out of helping Rolls Royce in, in, in right. a sort of like uh, purely pragmatic way, right? Like he does eventually use Rolls Royce as a sort of 
cover, yeah. but I don't think that's we don't get the impression that that's why he did it. And of course, we do get that that Rolls is uh it is Rolls' idea to frame Buck for the jewelry right. store robbery, for right. instance. So Rolls is actively involved in the crimes here, and he's a lawyer. Uh, though we, not that we ever see him lawyering. But but he is also the lawyer, right? Yeah, we, he's um, a lawyer because he says he's a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, like we have a court seat and, and he doesn't show and up. He does not lawyer in the court yeah. scene at all. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So, you know, Rolls, Rolls is uh, more more involved in Buck's life than, say, the kitten he feeds. But uh, Right, but it doesn't start that way, right? That's the right. thing, right? Is that like... yeah. There, this, this appears to come from a, uh, a out of yeah. this seems to come about as a sort of loyalty to each other and friendship to each other thing that sort of develops over time. It's not like you don't get the impression that like he's helping roles like to like in order to establish a, a useful contact for later, right? Right. Because we see him like help out that kid in a funny way too. Like he's he's constantly doing those kinds of things throughout the movie, right? Right. Like the kid goes to steal an apple, he you know gives him some money and kicks him in the ass and like right. sends him on his way. Like that is, and then steals the apple himself, which is a very and great steals the apple himself right. to that scene. Yeah. yeah. But. but like in the end, you get the impression that that at its heart is fundamentally a charitable, like a a sort of like right. kind gesture and not Absolutely. a not a and presumably if they're all gathered around what amounts to what appears to be his building, one has to assume that all those people to a certain extent are in some way connected to him, right? Like Right. You you know, we know we know at least from gangster movies as a whole that that's like the way those things work. Like everybody in that little neighborhood is like in some way or other on basically on his payroll. Right. Owing owing to owing him for their livelihood at the very least, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he's a compassionate individual in the way he's portrayed here, which makes him certainly more complicated than Buck. Uh, right. Buck well, is, Buck is 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 just a villain number one. Like he's right. not really given much personal art, and like that, that makes sense in the sense that you're like, well, there's sort of an economy of of of, right. of humanity to go around to a certain extent. Like, yeah, everybody who isn't necessary to have humanity is just sort of a a flat archetype. When, well, when when all of your heroes are are bad guys. Your bad guy has to either be a cop or especially bad. So, Buck right, which is and, and the cop thing is where it eventually usually goes in the genre later on, right? right. Like it's just yeah. that's just the easiest thing to do. Making your bad guy, your actual bad guy, one up your good guy, bad guy, is yeah. much harder than just making him a cop. That's right. like the easy one. It's like, well, I mean, all cops suck, you know. So, like, vis a vis the transitive principle here, like we could just. You know, we don't even have to. We don't even really have to spend a lot of time showing that the cops. We all already <laughs> right, already right. know that part. Yeah, show them take like one bribe and you're good to go. Like done, job Absolutely. done. Yeah. Whereas all the cops, all the cops in this movie are super. Uh, I mean, one prison guard is kind of dumb, but everybody's dumb and probably. Uh, I mean, not the worst ever. Like he seems yeah. fine. Yeah. Um. But yes, but most so... of the prison guards are, are all the most of the cops appear to be. Uh, zombies with guns basically like they're <laughs> right, just they're just right, right. mindless monsters that just gun yeah. down whatever they whatever stands in right. the way 
And zombie is probably a really smart Accurate. description because Accurate. they're also they're also just waiting to be killed. <laughs> for <the most. laughs> yes, yeah. Beautifully shot movie. Uh, Sternberg did the drawing, at least the initial drawings for the matte paintings himself, and most of these matte paintings, and uh, like the prison, when they drive through the prison gate, that's Mm-mm. that's matte. That's right. That's yeah, insane. That you know, it's so detailed, it's lit, it's it's beautiful. Uh. Yeah. So, you know, so much of the cityscape is matte painting and it all looks phenomenal. Uh and it's so beautiful. Um Yeah, his visual eye for this is during during the party, uh we get a title card about the Devil's Carnival and then yeah, the the cut to the breakdown of the party and everybody being drunk and and watching it, you know, you've got that feeling of being drunk. This quick succession right. of faces yeah, that's mirrors. a really cool scene. Yeah, and and you know the thing I thought about too in a really weird way is doing that many faces that quick is also like in a practical sense later on, like down the road, a hundred years down the road, is a really fascinating window into like people of the time because you, yeah. you don't usually just you just get exposed to so many people, and a lot of those people, I don't know what was going on when he was making that, but he didn't like a lot of them didn't look like they'd been through very much makeup. You know what I mean? There's some yeah. pretty, like, or maybe they were through makeup to make them specifically look terrible because they had been at this party, but people look right. rough as shit in that, and, it, and yeah. it works really well. Realistically rough for, for how this party is meant to have right, gone right. so far, right? Um, yeah, I know. It's, it's really fascinating. And I'm also, you mentioned the writing in the title card there, but, like, one of the things that, you know, we talked about this before with um, some of the other silent movies that we've done. But this one especially hit home a thing that I, you know, you think about when you watch silent movies is like silent movies with the ty- with the cards have a really unique opportunity that modern movies don't, which is to do thing to say directly like in the way literature would those right. kinds of setup things, and they're all of those cards that like transition are beautifully written. They're yes. a little they're a little hacky in the sense that they they sound like a gangster movie or a gangster <laughs> novel. But like, they're so deeply evocative, right? Like that opening one about like um, the moonlight pouring through the streets yeah. and like looking like a like the the cave dwellings of some bygone age or something. Really fascinating stuff. Sternberg had a uh, had a tendency to some purplish purplish prose, right? Uh, that that shines through here. It's his autobiography is called "Fun in a Chinese Laundry." And is is famously also very purple in in how it how it very artistically designed, describes uh, his career. Well, um, right. But you know what's fascinating to me is is that what the what this feels like though, and and I understand this is all derived from essentially the same source, which is we are already we're at the point where dime store novels about these topics were being right, written. Right. Yeah. And so he is aping the dime store novel, like kind of opening sentence to a paragraph style, like opening sentence to a chapter style. So I understand where this is coming from. Like that is a style of writing that you see. And what's interesting to me is like how that sort of iterates through time. It also happens to sound like the sort of narration that you would get in a a hack mental version of the narration of a noir movie. Yeah. Right, and it really, yeah, you know, where the really where the character works. narrates themselves. Yeah. It's it's 
and it's just very very evo- evocative and and again it's like it's it's like not how do I describe it? I I don't know, it's hard to articulate what I mean it's like it's like good writing per se but it works extremely well <laughs> like yeah you you walk away going you know exactly you get a feel for the scene really hard uh in a way that I really like yeah and i think the the ending to that party scene uh is first off just feathers throughout that party scene gets gets a lot of really great character growth in you know uh, her interactions with with roles and with uh bull and then ultimately it ends with buck threatening her uh attempting to sexually assault her and right, yeah. and we get buck's girlfriend who i don't know she's credited as meg but i don't i don't remember if she's actually named i don't actually think we ever hear her name yeah in the, i don't I, um, hear i don't think that her name is ever spelled yeah. out in any title cards right right so buck's buck's girlfriend uh gets gets a little bit of agency in that she is she is the one who wakes bull up out of his drunken stupor uh, which but, is fascinating right like it is a yeah. fascinating thing that that's how that uh develops right yeah um and then bull bull with the uh with the 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 dribble down his face just foaming yeah. at the mouth drunk uh rushing in to save feathers buck seeing him and jumping out the window and then bull jumping which is, out the window after him it's my, just which is my favorite thing like when yes it is very hilarious and i i i have never lived in a place where i could actually jump out the window Right, in my entire life. I mean, like I could jump out of the first floor windows of my house. I would hurt myself very badly, but yeah. like I could do it. But what, what I mean is, like, I am always fascinated by any movie where characters just jump out the window. It's like, did you know for sure there was something out there, or like, right, lesser of two evils sort of scenario? Well, I fall to my death, but like, you know, at least the, I wasn't beaten to the, death. The fact that both of them do it without thinking, and that yeah, visually, this movie. Something about that scene made me think this was an upstairs room already. Yeah, me too. Totally. I completely yeah. agree. I thought so too. So so like the this idea that 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 Buck sees Bull come in mad, knows he's in trouble, and just jumps out like a fourth story window was already very just immediately without thinking. Was very right, silly. It's very but funny. then yeah. but then Bull immediately jumping out after him <laughs> just right, right. icing it's on the cake so for that scene. Uh yeah, it's very good. A, a fascinating thing about this film, and, and, and that scene specifically, is it is interesting that the person who, that Bull is the person who ends up being the one to sort of, for lack of a better term, like, what is the word I'm looking for, like, like avenge her honor or whatever? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you would expect in a traditional film, like, the guy she ends up right. with. Right, would be the be... person who like hunts down and kills her attacker, yeah. right? Or yeah, like that, or that should her. have been that should have been like Roll should have saved her, and that should have been the trigger that really made them fall in love. But right, it, yeah, but and, it, and films that like that's the that's the the archety- yeah. like the standard style, right? Right. Instead, instead, her and Rolls fall in love in this very chaste way of the fact that they're the they're the ones left behind while bull goes out to exact this revenge scenario right right uh and then they're they're both their mutual loyalty to bull is what draws them together 
it's a complicated right. love story in a in it yeah. it actually really is and that they like their loyalty extends to the point where like when he's not going to die they both refuse to do anything right like right, right. they they get close a couple times but they don't ever cross that boundary and they both like feel shame about their feelings for each other and it only becomes when bull is like essentially well I mean bull is for all intents and purposes dead that they seem to yeah. let it happen and we it's still iffy whether or not they actually like like the newspaper claims they do and like the guard right, claims right. they do but you still kind of get the impression that like maybe they're like it's that kind of like well we love each other but we still can't we could never hurt bull really you know what i mean right, so we can't right. really go that far or whatever i am fascinated by the idea that the, the of the newspaper article that is that is baffling <laughs> to me like, like why would they know front page <laughs> news the, yeah, yeah the, like the the guy in jail's girlfriend is like cheating on him is just a yeah. Like very fascinating front page news. Well, to be fair, he did murder a rival gangster, uh, kill a bunch of prison guards, or at least his men killed a bunch of prison guards, and then and then had a had a major shootout with a with a small army. <laughs> That's true, uh, but like that newspaper article, I can't believe that like, that was no. also written as an extra edition, right? Like that right. seems like that's it's weird its placement because no wait, even that shows up in. Um, that shows up, yeah. That's in the extra edition, right? I think so, yeah. But like, I'm all I'm also fascinated by the idea of newspapers being able to pump out an extra edition that fucking quick. Like, listen, in an man, hour. it was a different time. It really the was. Entire infrastructure like, was designed to do that. So, like, right. But also, like, that doesn't feel like a piece that was initially intended for the uh, for the um, for the extra edition. That feels like to me that feels yeah. like a piece that was going to show up on the day he was executed in the regular edition. As a sort of filler for like, oh, also that dude who we're killing today, get this, his girlfriend's cheating on him. I like I like the idea that the extra edition isn't just a single broadsheet. You know, it's not just that. It's, it's a there's full other, newspaper. They, they, there's other they, information that out, in that man. newspaper. Like, <laughs> They're like, well, we might as well put the funnies and the weather and everything yeah. else in here. We're already get a bunch here. Of, get a bunch of ads in that one, at least. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, 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 really, it's, it's the front broadsheet. <laughs> and after that, it's all ads for the rest of the thing. It's like yeah. really uh, morbid ads, too. It's just all like for like <laughs> funeral urns. and. and um, I don't know if this is meant as a joke well. or not. But the hat that Rolls is wearing at the at the train station is yeah. this, the the most terrible. Ugly as fuck. Ugly. It's ugly as shit, like it's, man. It's, it's well, what it times... is is it's it's yeah. that kind of a fedora style, but but the brim is done yeah. like a woman's hat of the time. The fact that the brim is turned down and the and the hat is three times bigger than it should be. Is, yeah. Um, it's just so Do ridiculous. you think that this is his idea of an undercover hat? Do you <laughs> this, think that he's like, I'm going to be hiding. inconspicuous? The same way that like people will put on, like, in <sighs> movies, people will, like put on really big like jackets with the collars turned way up and like yeah. sunglasses and a mustache and like, a, it, like all to hide. It's like, oh, he's going to go to the train station to fool him out, so I've got to look really, I've got to look real uh, nonchalant yeah. here. And uh, I don't, this, is my, this is my hideout clothes. I don't know. It's, very it's a funny. really dumb hat. Uh, and in in a hat wearing culture, you got to think wearing a really dumb hat actually does make you stand out more than right. But but also, so does wearing a stupid jacket and everything else that always happens in movies That's like fair. that, right? Like yeah. uh, people's idea of what makes you look non you know inconspicuous is is yeah. you know just makes you look wrong. guilty. 
right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're almost always wrong uh, in both real life and in movies, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, people's idea of like, oh, this is my my inconspicuous clothes is, is always like the dumbest looking shit in the world. Um, yeah, I, it is fascinating. And then they tail him to the to the train station. Like he's right. surrounded by cops. at The train station is is very. Uh, it's all very funny, actually. Yeah, I mean that makes that makes me dislike the ending a little more too. Like Rolls already knows that the cops are staking out the train station, so using the two. But he tickets, did that on purpose, right? Yeah, that's, that's on purpose so that they, he could get away with. Yeah, uh, but they bought they bought two train tickets under the premise that that. Uh, Bull and one other person would escape, whoever that other person might be, on the train. Rolls knows that the train station's being watched, so that that's out. Bull, no matter what else happens, Bull is not going to that train station. He can't. So, uh, why can't they all just all three of them escape together in the end? Like, why why does Bull need to make the sacrifice at all, except for the more the morality play of the movie? Like it oh, never... I mean, I think it's exclusively for the morality play. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think, I well, at the same time, I, I will say this, right? Like, if Bull surrenders and nobody else knows that the rest of them are in there, which, in right. theory, the police are very stupid in this movie. Yes. Accurate, but nonetheless. In this situation, what Bull is doing is like, well, the manhunt stops. If yeah. he's there and they're gone, nobody's looking for the other two. At all. He's essentially giving them a clean getaway. Whereas he goes with them, it's a manhunt. It's going to be a manhunt probably forever, right? Like, I don't know where she was going to go with him. I forget. I think they might say. But they're like, we're talking like, oh, we're fleeing to non-extradition treaty countries at this point sort of level here, right? If he goes with them. Whereas if he lets them go, it's over, right? Like, it's right. The, the police will be happy. He'll be executed. And, like, they're scot-free. No one ever has to know they were even there. Like, a single police officer tried to chase Rolls-Royce into the building and lost him. Like, that's not going to be enough for them to really figure out that he was involved in their escape. Or, you know, he was, or, well, and then there is no escape, right? Rolls-Royce right. and 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 the Feathers are not wanted people as far as the police are concerned, right? So it's yeah. a completely clean break. So I think it does extend beyond the morality play in that sense, right? Um, yeah, I think that's is a true. is a kind of very smart decision making on Bull's part to essentially free them from their loyalty to him because they're also super loyal, right? If he doesn't, if he goes with them and they try to stop him, make him come with them, they're you know they're going to do essentially sacrifice themselves for him at some point. Like that's where their loyalty rides, right? It rides. So like they're going eventually if he goes with them. They will die trying to protect him from the police who are chasing him. It's yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rolls Royce has already been shot because of that. Right. Shot well, by Bull. Yes. As as far as we know, right? Which is fact. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, because he's shooting out the window, and it seems like it's coming. That's the the impression the movie gives you, at least. You know. Right. Uh Though the insert shot of the uh, brick window being completely decimated by the police machine guns is frequent so you know uh i think the movie is also just very interested in pointing out that the police are firing completely indiscriminately uh yeah i mean 
at least they evacuated the building. So I guess that's better than modern <laughs> right. police. Yeah. So they've already they they suck, but they've already got a like a leg up on modern police. Although I'm pretty sure they start shooting into the building before they oh, evacuate yeah, the absolutely. people, and then they evacuate. Like they're like five minutes into the shootout, and then they're like, "Oh, we should probably get the people out of here before we like bring in the machine gun." <laughs> right. Right. Uh yeah. So good. Good for that. I mean, I, we're talking like World War One, like. We like it, it's funny that like so often in, in in modern America we talk about the militarization like uh, of the police, but like those motherfuckers have a full on um, like auto, like fully automatic like World War One machine gun the, for some fucking reason. Uh, a phrasing that comes up a lot when we talk about uh, police police reform versus abolition is that the system as it exists and as it has always existed. Since the 1850s has been in response to reform. This this is right. the reform of the previous horrors of the system. Is that right. uh, is that the NYPD, the Chicago PD, the LAPD are small armies? That's part of the reform. Right, uh, right absolutely. And yeah. it's just fascinating that the reform was like, well, you know, I mean, we had the machine gun, but we know what we really right. need. We need the tank. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated to it, I in in a really morbid way I am fascinated to consider how modern police departments would respond to this situation. Uh, well, again, uh, I think it's like SWAT backwards. teams now, right? It's all SWAT right. teams now, right? Right. But like they uh, have tanks, would they just drive a tank through the side of the building? Because these guys are just willing to shoot the fuck out of that building, right? Would they just drive the tank right. into the building? Probably. Uh, well, you may you may have seen news this week that the the San Francisco Police Department is trying to get right his building robot murder for, dogs. Yes, I yeah for yeah the robot murder dogs. Um, the idea, like, as honestly, I understand it, is honestly actually honestly speaking, I would I know people are really up in arms about this, and I agree yeah. it's fucked up. But yeah. I kind of would prefer the robot army dog or robot murder dogs because I feel like they're even easier to deal with than normal stupid police. Yeah. Like, have um, you ever seen, like, one of those things? Like, I don't know. I just feel like. Yes and no. It's my understanding that the actual argument for real in San Francisco is that the dom- uh, the bomb disposal robot has uh, has tools already attached to it that could accidentally murder someone. So, basically, basically they're trying. So, they want to give the robot uh what is it called? What immunity? What is it called? I forget. Yeah, um, yeah. basically give the robot qualified immunity. Uh, except, you know, once the robot <laughs> has qualified immunity, then they can just start using it as a weapon. And that's really where the problem lies. Right, um, right. Well, I mean, that's what they want to do. Like, let's right, be very because clear Because that's here. what they want to do. There's, yes. They, that is what they actually want to do. Like, if they can go full what the American Army has already done, which is full drone mode, where you never even have right. to put yeah. boots on the ground, you can just murder people from a distance. Yeah. And it like that's the goal, right? Then the murder and you can indiscriminate murder, and then then you can't even figure out who did it, right? right? Like, oh, everybody can just say, no, I wasn't the one. Yeah, and the super you, the super crazy part about that is someone did do it. You know, none of these things are controlled by some mindless AI, right? Right. No, but yeah. they can, but they they can all deny. But, but it's like that. the firing squad thing, right? We're right. like, well, that's why a bunch of people shoot is so that we never absolutely have to know who did it, right? Yeah. So I mean, how. If we if we slowly step backwards, uh, first off, Bull would have never been able to surrender. They would have 
manufactured <laughs> right. something. I mean, again, we talked about I It's yeah. very unlike the bull at the uh, time would have been able to right. surrender either. Yeah. Let's step, be very clear here. Step back again. Well, first off, you can't surrender now because no one carries handkerchiefs. So you never you never have a white flag to right. wave now. Uh we've we've dummied that out of society. Um, and then uh and then next they would have completely destroyed the building, but probably with with weapons other than Gatling gun mounted on a on a uh, uh motorcycle. It, it, it is hard to say, um just because I've seen the videos of what these kinds of people like to do in the desert in their free yeah. time with oh, yeah. guns. So it's also possible they still would have just used the, the machine gun. It is possible. Just because it's um, fun. Step back one more. Uh, I think I think a very likely scenario would be that the prison escape, assuming the prison escape would have been possible in the modern age, well, it uh, would have been possible have, in 1927 either. Yeah, would have ended was, but... in a high-speed chase that ended in a public shootout, uh, which right. we've seen frequent examples of police having public shootouts because of a high-speed chase with a very well, we've low we've seen stakes. evidence of police having, like, p- p- yeah. public shootouts for, like, right. not high-speed chases. Yeah. So, you know. Low-speed chases or... or you know, the, or sometimes the, just because the they want the, to, frankly. The, the person they're chasing didn't even commit uh, a real crime. Um, but, but yeah, and then and then indiscriminately firing on that person despite other people in the car or other people in other cars caught in the crossfire or, uh, or tackling and arresting a person, trying to get his family away from a shootout that the police instigated, which is something that happened just a couple weeks ago uh, in L.A., uh, yeah, and, yeah. There's a lot of, there's and a lot honestly, of those all feel like the actual. Yeah. Sc- but I would argue that all yeah. those feel like the more likely scenario in 1927 too. Right, right, absolutely. To be absolutely. honest, like yeah. what happens in this after his prison escape and onward feel like radically improbable scenarios That's, compared to uh, like yeah. the rest of the movie. Really, we talk about qualified immunity being a recent innovation, but. But it yeah, was only police never it was only prison. innovated because police have never had I mean have never had consequences, period. Right. That's not that's not what police are, are meant to be in American society, which is one of the reasons we want to get rid of them. Uh, right. But yeah. I, I, I think that like it, it really the prison escape really did bother me. Like, like I don't know how to explain it, but like I get really caught up on stupid technical details and the yeah. idea that a prison guard is just walking around with the keys to the cell. Like this is a yeah. large prison. This is not like this is not like the local holding cell at the sheriff's right, right. like yeah. you know department. This is like a large scale like mega prison. Like I've been to those places before, like you know <laughs> what I mean? And they and they yeah. even in nineteen like the nineteen thirties they had like a they centralized were... locking and unlocking right. mechanism because having a dude with the keys wandering around is a bad yeah. idea. Yeah. And it's not it's not the local jail. It is local to where we're at. Right, but you get the impression the it is the state but penitentiary for yeah. like Chicago he's, or whatever. Yeah. He's already been convicted of a capital offense. Like he's yeah. he's he's in the death row lockup of whatever this prison exists. And and they're re- just really nonchalant about yeah, about how they're handling it, uh, you know. Also, to a silly degree, you know, and that's another. It's, and the, and that's what I would say is that like the last 
whatever that is, 15, 20 minutes of the movie, the whole movie is a little silly. Like, it, yeah. it feels silly. It has silly moments throughout it. But it, it escalates in its sort of like, what? Sort yeah. of vibes as we get towards the end of the movie. Right. Um, and not, that doesn't and, make it a bad movie. It just makes it a right. Not, not in an absurd way, necessarily, textually. Like, you know, some of the other silly moments we've seen could build to something truly absurd in the end. It's absurd right. in sort of a, a, a philosophical sense in the end, right. but it's not absurd in a comedy sense. Right. Um, Whereas there's other like actual comedy absurdities yeah. elsewhere. Right. I, I you know, and and just to be clear here, this is not a 1927. This is not because it's a 1927 movie. This is almost the exact same complaint I had about Silence of the Lambs. Right. What is that? Yes. Like eight years ago, <laughs> nine years ago. Yeah. It is just a stupid idea that anybody would run anything like this. And not and I'm not even trying to imply that like the police are smart, but like I'm talking this is like like my son who is seven years old yeah. can figure out this dynamic. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I actually I disagree because I think Silence of the Lambs would have been vastly improved if Hannibal Lecter <laughs> escaped his glass cage in a huge warehouse room prison by playing chess by with. Playing chess with I can't remember what happened in the actual yeah. movie. I just remember it is the stupidest thing that almost has, has ever been put to film. He has escaped at the end, but I don't actually remember how he how he escaped. He uses like uh, his mind powers to like convince yeah. the guard to come into the room or something. It's Maybe. not even like the old like oh, I'm choking on this thing trick. It's like right. he like mind Reason. powers the yeah. guard into like coming in by, by like doesn't matter. It's so what a fucking stupid ass movie. I hate that movie <laughs> I know you so goddamn much. Sorry, uh, not to relitigate a movie from nine years yeah. ago or whatever. Uh, anyway. oh, it makes it, it gets it gets my ire up even thinking yeah. about it. So so Sternberg is Stern and Berg. No, that's not right. Um, what what is happening right now? Sternberg is uh, famously a a pretty hard director to work with. Uh, he's yeah, a perfectionist. Um, the Criterion essay, which is written by, uh, Jeffrey O'Brien has just a couple of quotes from him that I think all come from fun in a Chinese laundry, his autobiography that I already mentioned, which was written in 65, by the way. So it's like, you know, he's, he's much older when he's writing Chinese laundry. Um, but just, it's got a paragraph that's just like four quotes from him. (laughs) <laughs> for, for a sentence just to give a picture of the sort of guy he was. Uh, and I'd like to read all of them. Uh, my pictures are acts of arrogance. All art is an exploration of an unreal world. To reality, one should prefer the illusion of reality. Actors are material with which one works. And Marlene Dietrich is not Marlene. She is me. Um, so yeah, he views he views his actors as props, essentially, you know, <laughs> something something he can very be very exacting about. And a lot of people, actors particularly, did not really like that. Uh, in fact, William Powell, who is Nick Charles in The Thin Man, um had it written into his contract after after he worked with von Sternberg on a film, he had it written into his contract that he would never work under Sternberg again. Hmm. 
Um, uh, yeah, he just was not, he was not a very kind person to work under apparently. Um, whereas, you know, Dietrich worked with him multiple times and, and, you know, she's, she's enough of her own person that I have to believe that she had a relationship with him that worked for her. I can also imagine a world where like, he seems like he would specifically piss off male actors more that's that's also like his attitude would would conflict with their masculine identity more severely and just like their self-concept you know their conception of self right like if if you know you know what i mean like not to like excuse me i'm I'm sure he sounds like he was a real pain in the ass to work with like not right like let's be very clear here i'm trying to excuse it it's just sort of like there's there's certain sort of things that i could see like especially like the very popular men in Hollywood at the time have a certain sort of like seemingly I'm at least as important as the director on the set kind of self-conception. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that might, that might come into conflict with that. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. Uh, and it does, you know, certainly all of the stories we have about people not liking him are men, but right. And, and that just feels I don't well, that's know. Also, like, it, you know, this is, you know, we would have stories of men not liking him more than we would have stories of. Uh, right. That's also very true. Right. Like uh, how much the women in Hollywood at the time had any opportunity to express their feelings about their working conditions is pretty. Right. You have to be pretty, pretty high up there to even maybe get that chance. Yeah. Right? Even even someone as famous as Marlene Dietrich maybe was never in a position to actually complain about Sternberg. Yeah, to actually badmouth the director, yeah. This movie's really fun, and I really... Yeah, I really really like it. I really, really like it. Buniel called this his favorite film of all time. Yeah, that's so weird. That's fascinating. Which is really interesting. I get it, though, man. I get it. Absolutely. Like, Buniel films feel kind of like this. Like, some of those, like, the the wilder ones, right? Feel... Like have a similar feeling to them. It's interesting to think about. Absolutely, you know, like yeah. it's it's really hard to imagine, but at the same time, it makes complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand people of you know, Bunel's sort of a contemporary in his in his earliest work, right? Right. Bunel's Bunel's making movies not not too long after this. Unchien Andalou, the the one he made with Dolly with the cut eye image, um is 29 and the age door is 1930 so you know he's 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 starting to work very shortly after this so you know it also is at what point in time did louis bunel say this was his favorite movie of all time it's it's maybe up in the air right but But, i mean almost all of those kind of like you know at the same time though all those quotes always seem to be pretty significantly into like nobody's asking directors in night you know the after their first film who their favorite director right. is you know what i mean right. that's right. always after they've had a couple of hits and like newspapers or whatever want to report on that right you have to be big enough for for anybody to care about that question for that question to be asked yeah does that make sense right. um i i imagine it is later on but but you still regardless of whether that's true you can still definitely see the influence right like yeah like it's well, just it's just there right like i, don't I know. think i think people like Buniel. Um, would have been ta- chasing the artistry of a Sternberg, right? right? I think so. Yes, yeah. A, but also, like, it, 
Right, for sure. Def- I mean, like that's definitely probably like the, the the sort of igniting part of the influence, the part that like gets them started. But like when you get into some of the really goofier shit towards the end of Brunel's <laughs> career, yeah, feels like this. Like and not like obviously not in plot or anything like that, but like something like Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie or, or Phantom of Liberty have a have a goofiness that feels akin to this. Yeah. In a no, weird way. Right. Yeah. Like we can we can we can't even necessarily articulate the threads drawing there, but but you feel they exist, right? Yes. It's like it, like I said, like when I first read that quote, I was like, yeah. what? And then that like is, two seconds later I was like, uh yeah, okay. All right, uh, sure. That is you know, sort of a side effect of this project, right? And and are approaching ten years of doing this project. Is, yes, is eventually we we have accidentally achieved the film knowledge to be able to say, yeah, I can see that influence. <laughs> Even I mean, it's it's weird, but it yeah. it's yeah, you can feel it, man. Like you can yeah. feel it. I mean, it I'm I'm looking forward to the next two. I'm I, whenever we go into a silent film, I'm a little bit. Not like, not apprehensive exactly. It's more like, it really depends on like what the goals of Criterion seems to be in showing us that silent film, right? Because not all of them have been amazing. Some of them have been like this one, and others have been truly, truly like remarkable yeah. and like kind of life changing. But like, you know, it's it's hit or miss, especially since this one seems to be preserved in a really good state, right? Yeah, like it is. It is fully watchable without any sort of like, which is weird. Which is actually kind kind of crazy for a movie that Paramount tried to is, bury when it came out. A, pa- a movie that Paramount tried to bury <laughs> is is within striking distance yeah. of a hundred years old. Is is yeah. fucking wild to me, man. Like, right? So I bet, people, and that tells you how much people cared about this movie, like specifically this movie, right. even though they tried to bury it a hundred years later. Like, we have a nearly perfect copy. I would not be surprised if other movies that won Oscars at the inaugural Oscars are just lost. But this one does Yeah, no, exist. totally. Yeah, I yeah. bet. Yeah. Well, our two other movies. Next week is The Last Command, which is the movie that William Powell has a supporting role in and made him <laughs> made him sign a contract, <laughs> put into his contract that he was I can't wait to talk about that again. next week. Yeah. And then the last one is The Docks of New York. And they're both they're both from 1928, so made directly after this. So obviously, you know, after his rocky start that we talked about earlier, uh, the success of this movie did get him more work immediately, right? So, right, and not not people pulling favors and <laughs> doing. Uh, the funniest part of uh, Paramount's response to this movie, I feel, just because it's it's a thing that I guess I understand existing. Uh, Heck won the Academy Award for writing. Uh, Sternberg gets gets more pictures, you know, offered to him to direct. But but his his direct prize for this is that Paramount awarded him a gold medal and a ten thousand dollar bonus for uh, for the film's critical and commercial success. Which is I don't know weird, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a very strange thing to do. Thing, strange way to do things. Uh, a thing I, I actually, it seems like all of the first Academy Award films seem to be still extant. Yeah. But it's also worth noting that 
at the time they were also just giving out awards for people who are important who don't have a film connected to them. <laughs> like several of the film several of the people are just like no specific film. It's just like, well, hey, we need to like acknowledge that this person's fucking rad. That that sure doesn't surprise me about the very first Academy Awards. Yeah. Well, and this is a movie from two years prior to the actual event where they're like, well, right. we're going to reach back a little bit. Listen, the Oscars have always been a circle jerk. This is just. Yes. They, the prototypical Oscars were also. <laughs> we're, we're kind of extra circle jerky, like yeah. in a really weird way. <laughs> how, do you, how do you have the very first Oscars where you're establishing all of these awards and also give out two honorary, honor, honorary special I, awards. I love it. I <laughs> like that that part of the circle jerk is is there from day one. Yeah. Just like right out of the gate. We're like, well, we're going to hand out honorary awards too. I can't wait to watch the rest of these movies. Uh, yeah, this, this was a really fun experience. Um, the Criterion DVD does have two different... Uh, audio track and two different uh, accompaniment tracks um and both are really good um i watched the full movie with one of them and then i watched when i went back to visit some some scenes i watched it with the other and yeah they're both really great i think you know for for a silent film where there's not a lot of bonus to go into here uh what we get on this dvd is is pretty pretty nice as well uh so look forward to whatever whatever else may may accompany the other bonus discs. On this one, the uh, the main bonus feature was sort of a what was it called? It was called Underworld: How It Came to Be, and it's uh, film scholar Janet Bergstrom put together uh, a little documentary on Sternberg's career prior to this movie basically oh and that's where i draw a lot of the information about the salvation hunters that does sound interesting and that and is actually very interesting it is neat when criterion gets a little bit heavier into the sort of like what feels like what should be one of their mandates which is sort of film preservation with like giving you extra contextual information that you just wouldn't otherwise have yeah uh in any other context the crazy thing about this one to me is that this three three disc three movie box set yeah. Which I guess makes sense on a per movie basis, but $100 was the price tag on this box set. Uh, yeah, I mean Yeah, yeah, I mean I guess they're 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 thinking of it as like, oh yeah, you're paying full price for each of these movies. Right. Rather right. than like getting some sort of box set discount. Although I assume honestly that also Criterion's pricing somewhat is based on like demand and like a silent movie box set is going to have right. a very low right. demand so they got to get better margins or whatever on these ones than they would on like a big name film that they had that they release uh, i i bet this doesn't sell all that super well the wikipedia uh brings up critic andrew saris talking about this movie as as someone who pushes back against the proto-gangster idea with the sentence less a proto-gangster film than a pre-gangster film in which the criminal world of the prohibition era provides a backdrop for a tragic tale of byronic hero destroyed i have no idea what byronic means i saw i read that and i was like really i feel like you're making words up other related to lord byron but i don't necessarily what know what byron's heroes as as prototypes are uh or archetypes are um yeah not by the avenging forces of law and order but by the eternal vicissitudes of love faith and falsehood 
I love that the word vicissitudes there is outside of the quotes, even though that's definitely like they didn't. <laughs> that would definitely be in the article or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I feel like I feel like I don't want to call other people. We are we're bad. Like we're bad yeah. at what we do. But nonetheless, that feels like an extra level of pedantry. Uh, if I'm being totally right, honest, right. Yeah. like coming it back feels full circle, to, unnecessary. Yeah, to where we started talking about the the sorts of critics who try to differentiate this from genre film. Uh, I think that's putting putting a lot more onto this than needs to be put onto this. It's a really great genre film. Uh, it is. It's also sure it transcends. The normal, but also lots of genre. genre films are also just really yeah. good films. It's yeah. fine. It's okay. Yeah. You're allowed That's to watch. Fine. You're allowed to like a genre film, and Criterion's very good about that, right? Criterion just right. has genre films that are just fun genre films, and some uh, some some Criterion genre films aren't fun genre films. That's true, but <laughs> yes, yeah, some normal Criterion films are not fun films either. So you know, right? Can't yes. be mad about that. But yeah, let's pull this one to a close. We've got more Sternberg coming up in the next couple of weeks. Really looking forward to that. This week, it was Underworld from 1927, which the title card at the beginning of this calls his first professional. Uh, <laughs> but not, yeah, I know. not like professional something. Just the first professional of von Strong, <laughs> of Joseph von Sternberg. It's like the wording on it. Um, it's, just a, it's a really weird sentence anyway. But also, it's not his first... <laughs> Like, like he'd already directed movies prior to this. I don't. Just uh, that title card is baffling. Like, yeah. where did that title card come from? I don't. Yeah, I don't even know. know. Like, I don't know. It feels like it's... it must have been on some other edi- like other release of the movie. Right. That, like, is somewhere between then and now. Yeah. But like closer to then than now. Yeah. Like where they reshowed it or something at some point in like the fifties or something. I don't know. It was very odd. Yeah. It was very odd, which is why I had to mention it, because it's just very dumb. Uh, But I love it. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much for listening to Lost and Criterion. As always, I am the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oyotari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.